And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, July 27th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, she rescued this seafaring federal group from sinking under its own culture. Plus, how data improves customer service at the Health Resources and Services Administration. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville continues his blanket hold on confirmations of military flag officers in protest of Pentagon abortion travel policy. Now, the effects of that block are starting to trickle down through the ranks. The Secure Families Initiative, an advocacy group for military families, delivered a petition Monday to Tupperville and other Senate leaders urging the block to end. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr spoke with the group's executive director, Sarah Strider. We're very plugged in with networks of other military partners and loved ones, and we noticed that this was an issue that seemed to be getting on everyone's radar. You know, no matter your branch, no matter your political affiliation, uh, even folks who are not traditionally very activisty, we saw a lot of activity uh, that folks were distressed by what was happening. And so what we wanted to do was help represent that kind of collective voice that we were seeing in our personal networks and channel it uh, in a way that felt productive. So a few weeks ago, we threw together some language that felt representative of the sentiments that we were seeing online. We published and circulated the petition, and sure enough, we've gotten over 550 signatures, all from family members of actively serving folks in uniform. So tell me a little bit about the specific issues that concern military family members yeah, you can think of the impact as there being three levels. So the first level are the around 281 military families who are stuck in limbo right now. Until their service member's promotion clears, they're having to make impossible choices about whether or not to move ahead of time uh, and hope that they get reimbursed for out-of-pocket expenses or whether to stay and wait, uh, but delay a spouse's ability to find the next job or their kid's ability to plug in with the next school. Um, They're obviously the folks most directly negatively impacted. Then there's that second level of folks who are stuck in their jobs because there's no backfill left or they're unable to advance to the next job because someone's still taking up space. And then there's folks who are in these units where the leadership is undermined, and that does a lot to harm morale. But the final level is that this issue affects every single one of us with a loved one in uniform because it's politicizing an institution that we rely on for our safety. Um, If we're going to trust that our senators are going to have our back and do what's right over more consequential decisions over life and death, we're not given a lot of confidence that that can work when something that should be basic and nonpartisan can't even go through. You know, to an outsider, it might seem as though um, this is an issue for completely upper-ranked officers, and they may not understand how this is an issue for people at a lower rank whose promotions aren't confirmed by Senate. Sure. I mean, I'm we're an enlisted family myself, so I'm not speaking because uh, we have a direct promotion uh, out of the balance, but we are still affected because we serve in units that are whose leaders uh, this impacts. And so 
you know, to use an analogy that we thought might resonate with the senator in question, it's like taking a football coach out of the biggest game of the year halfway through and not and expecting that to not affect the players on the field. It, of course, affects every single service member from the lowest enlisted to the highest ranked because they don't have con confirmed uh, leadership. And so is that actually holding up moves all the way down through the ranks? We're in touch with a number of families who are affected, including the 281 who are kind of stalled in their moves. And like I said earlier, um, there's even some some high ranks who have had delayed retirement by almost a year uh, because they've been asked. I think it was by the Army. This was published. The Army asked at least a dozen uh, generals to stick around for extra time because their backfill wasn't ready. So that's what I was talking about, that level two, that ripple effect. Now, Senator Tuberville says he has a group of veterans who have signed a petition saying they support his hold on the nominations. Are there some military families who also feel that this hold on the nominations is making a point that's important to them? So first of all, I disagree with the oversimplification of the policy of disagreement that's underlying all of this. This isn't a pro-life or a pro-choice debate. The DOD policy is a travel and leave policy uh, out of recognition of the fact that service members don't get to choose where they live. And DOD is trying to make sure that folks either in uniform who need it or their immediate dependents can still access reproductive health care, which could be anything from uh, a DNC under a, an emergency miscarriage. I mean, this is so much broader than what I think folks want to boil it down to. So I'm happy for the opportunity to clarify that first and foremost, because I think otherwise the temperatures remain high and things remain very partisan and oversimplified. Um, but just to speak to, you know, vying petitions, I don't know who this group of 5,000 veterans are, but what I can say is that as a as the family member of someone who's actively still in uniform, what I'm talking about and referring to is our day-to-day -day present and our day-to-day -day future. And I think that is an important stake in this uh, situation that's a bit distinct from our veteran colleagues. And so that's why we felt it was important to inject military family voices into the conversation, which is something that we do every day on every issue that we advocate on. Is this something that you actually hear people saying, well, we may not be a military family in the future because this is such an unfriendly environment for us? Yeah. In fact, so yesterday we had a small group of us who were able to deliver the petition in person. Uh, incidentally, all five DOD branches were represented by a military spouse or a veteran in that group. And some of the folks in that group have military kids of their own who are turning 18. And despite having lived a life of service where you may have assumed they would want to follow in their parents' footsteps, some of them are seriously reconsidering that choice because it seems like it's a too risky of a choice to put their career on a line if things are continued to remain this politicized. And this speaks to this situation. But there's obviously a broader ecosystem of politicizing the military that we've seen over the last few years. So it's all contributing. What would you like to see Senate do in terms of a solution to this problem? So what we are asking to happen is for Senator Tuberville to stop the blockages on military promotions. And if he still wants to hash out his policy disagreement with the Department of Defense to do so through normal legislative channels, I believe there's already been a bill introduced by Senator Hassan, I think, that would codify this DOD policy. And so that is the appropriate mechanism by which Senator Tuberville and any other senators 
uh, could express their disagreement with the policy and lobby hard against it if that's what they wish. So our goal is to kind of get past the military promotion blockages, release the almost 300 military families affected from this limbo, and then we can have the next debate next week on something like this. Sarah Strider is executive director of Secure Families Initiative. Speaking there with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how data improves customer service at the Health Resources and Services Administration. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. An organization called Service to the Citizen recently handed out dozens of awards to federal officials. At the very top of the list, though, was my next guest. Alex Stripapatana is Director of Data and Evaluation at the Health Resources and Services Administration, and he joins me now. Mr. Stripapatana, good to have you with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And exactly what does the Director of Data and Evaluation do at HRSA? Let's start there. Well, it's a very privileged position. I get to work with four teams within my division. If you think of the data lifecycle from the inception of a data point to being able to tee up our organizations to report on those data points with a level of accuracy and quality, that would be one team. The next part is once we have those data in our system, the analytical processes that are applied so that we can see if there are any particular trends or opportunities to enhance the program or better invest resources or deploy interventions. That would be the next part of my work and the second team. The third part of the team is the dissemination aspect. So once we have data in our system, we've done some really good analyses. We've looked at potential trends. We've identified some opportunities. We then have the privilege of sharing those data points with various folks, the public, folks who are policymakers, certainly folks within the Bureau that make decisions about the program. And so our dissemination team, their primary work is making sure that we are sharing this information in a way that is digestible and applicable, ready to use across a continuum of data users. And then finally, the the fourth team is our data modernization team. And, And that aspect of my work is, how do we make these data points better? How do we improve the efficacy of the data? How do we improve the application of the data, improve the utility? How do we improve efficiency? How do we make life easier for our health centers to report on the data so that they can spend more time with their patients, and rightfully so? So that's sort of the four areas of my division, and I get to oversee these teams and their work. All right. And so you might say then that the ultimate purpose of the data that's gathered, processed, disseminated, and then used and analyzed in some way really results in service to the 30 million people that are underserved that might use HRSA facilities to obtain their health care. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I know that we take each data point very seriously. So we know that it represents a life, a community, a person. We care for those data in a way that we would care for people. And we make sure that we are telling the stories of our patients and our organizations that care for those patients. Now, the organizations that provide health care in those often rural and underserved areas, they are not federal facilities, but they're people operating under the auspices of HRSA. What mechanism do you have to ensure that they're receiving the data that you're sending them and the analysis, and that they use that in some way to say, how are we doing here with respect to the ultimate delivery of health care? 
it, it is quite a dynamic relationship. It's quite bi-directional. So as a mandate of participation in the health center program, they have to deliver data to us on an annual basis. These data are called the uniform data system data, and it covers a gamut operational things about these facilities, as well as the patients that they serve, their staffing, their financial situation, and the like. So again, through our processes, we do a series of analyses, and then we push these data in aggregate form back out into the public, where these health centers could also be consumers. So they can see their own data, they can compare their data with other like health centers or other primary care facilities that are delivering care to the healthcare safety net. And I imagine that as you see the data kind of come round and round again, I guess it gets more detailed and maybe more valuable with each round trip cycle, to put it crudely. There might be trends that HRSA can notice that you could maybe disseminate to everyone and saying, hey, we're finding that in these instances of this use of this procedure or this new drug, this is what tends to happen with these people or whatever, and then everybody can get in on it. Exactly. Exactly. We do our very best to push these data out into the public forum for all sorts of potential patients of health centers, again, policymakers, academics, the health centers themselves. Just like you were mentioning, data is very cyclical, and I think that we have opportunities to improve data collection, data reporting through each iteration, and as well as, um, more importantly, how do we better inform these organizations, how do we better inform this program to better serve the patients' communities? We're speaking with Alec Stripipatana. He is Director of Data and Evaluation at the Health Resources and Services Administration. And how did you come to this work? You've been at HRSA a few years now. Yes, sir. I've been privileged to be working for the Bureau of Primary Health Care for about 10 years now. Quite honestly, it was a stroke of luck. I was actually on faculty at the University of California, Los Angeles. I happened to be at a meeting in Washington, D.C., at that time, there was a call out for opportunities to work for the Bureau of Primary Health Care. I happened to meet the director of, at that time. My predecessor was actually at this meeting. We got to talking and saw some mutual career goals, professional goals, aspirations. And she said, you know what? How would you like to work for us? And I said, that would be a wonderful idea. And so made sure to see if it was okay with the missus to move our family from California to Washington, D.C., and every day has been better since the last. And over the years, have you seen an uptake in both medical practitioners, administrators of healthcare, and maybe even patients themselves, greater willingness or even understanding of why they need to use data in the execution of their duties or in picking a place to get healthcare? Absolutely. You know, I think as a society as a whole, we've become more data-informed folks in decision-making, whether you're a consumer or a provider of services, you can track data trends. You can see where there are certain procedures that are more effective than others or certain clinical workflows that might be more effective than others. And then you can see those data in aggregate form through performance on clinical quality measures, let's say, um, that have very, their, their standard ways of reporting clinical care or clinical outcomes with very defined numerators and denominators, specifications on inclusion and ex exclusion criteria. All that to say is there are a nice way to be able to benchmark where you're at, where you want to be in current state or future state. And of course, the data warehouse is right there on the homepage of HRSA. It's really open to the public. It's not just the professional community that can access this data. What kind of 
uptake do you get on the data warehouse and do you monitor who's looking at what? Absolutely. I mean, we do get to see interfaces. We don't get specifics on who exactly is interfacing with the HRSA data warehouse, but we actually see the hits, the number of hits. And we see the number of hits grow over time as the word gets out on this information, as well as folks' familiarity and comfortability with using and engaging data. I will say that the various teams that are involved with pushing data out into the public sphere are quite conscientious in pushing data out in a way that is user-friendly across a spectrum of users, from your more layperson to your more sophisticated academic. And just a final question, in your day-to-day work, you interact with people doing data, but what about the medical side? Absolutely. You know, we do get opportunities to go visit our health centers for various reasons. In my line of work, what I'll do is I'll be deployed to a health center to see their clinical workflows, their data workflows, and see if there are opportunities to enhance data quality, data reporting, or reduce the burden of reporting these data And it's a wonderful opportunity to get to talk with providers, really see what's happening behind the scenes. You know, we do take these data points quite seriously because they do help inform the program. But it's very good to keep in mind exactly how data are getting charted, how they're being entered into an electronic health record system, an EMR. So it's quite insightful. And one of the best parts of doing a site visit and, and seeing our health centers is I try and go to these places early and unannounced. And I'll take time and I'll sit in the waiting room. You learn a lot about the organization, about the communities that we serve, just by looking at the dynamics between the front desk staff and the patients, how they're greeted, how they're treated with respect, how they're engaged, the pictures that are in a waiting room. It's wonderful. Interesting. And, well, to follow up quickly, the centers that we're talking about, these healthcare delivery centers, these are not primitive places where, you know, there's an old enameled white counter and this kind of thing. These are fairly modern. They would look in place in any of the great suburban settings, too. Well, I will say that there are a host of health centers and they fall on a continuum, depending on their environment, right? So I think for perspective, we have nearly 1,400 healthcare organizations or health centers, parent organizational health centers that represent over 14,000 delivery sites. This is across the United States, stretching into the Pacific as well as the Atlantic. So given the context, you will see very sophisticated health centers, very sophisticated health centers. And HRSA does a great job in investing in these organizations to be able to update their care delivery environments and the like. Alec Sripapatana is Director of Data and Evaluation at the Health Resources and Services Administration, also an award winner from the Service to the Citizens Organization. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, sir. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a slightly past mid-year review of your thrift savings plan investment returns. But first, she rescued this seafaring federal group from sinking under its own culture. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
For service members or civilians aboard the nation's ships and planes, nothing is worse than a culture of assault, bullying, sexual harassment. Yet those were widespread on the craft operated by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. My next guest set about fixing a toxic culture. Now she's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Rear Admiral Nancy Hahn is director of NOAA's Commission Corps and director of its marine and aviation operations, and she joins me now. Rear Admiral Hahn, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for inviting me to be here today. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So what was going on when you took over? I mean, what kind of reports were you getting and what was NOAA trying to do here? So we're getting reports from across our workforce of bullying, harassment, behavior, And we united with our workforce to figure out what was going on, why it was going on, and what we could do as a team to address it. And really what we're aiming for and what we've been working towards is a respectful workplace. So everybody can show up and feel safe physically, mentally, emotionally to do the taxing job that we ask them to do and that the nation depends on. And let's back up for a moment. Commission Corps at NOAA is a uniformed type of force, and it mans the, uh, or crews, I should say, is the modern word, the vessels that NOAA operates. Tell us about the extent, the number of people, and how it all works, and how it comes to be a uniformed service. So the NOAA Corps is one of the eight uniformed services in the United States. And our primary responsibility is to operate NOAA's 15 ships and soon to be 10 aircraft. Um, we work alongside our civilian counterparts that are professional mariners and civilians, the engineers, the stewards, the deck department, the mechanics, the technicians. So as a team in this workforce, we prepare the ships and aircraft, we operate them, and we make sure that we're collecting data for the nation that informs everything from fishery quotas each year to hurricane forecast. And these people are trained by NOAA or are they from the Maritime Academy? What's their background to get to NOAA as a Commission Corps member? So we have a very diverse workforce. We have the NOAA Commission Corps. We have a total of six personnel systems. We have five unions, so five collective bargaining agreements. And we come from all corners, all sectors. So Everything from experience in the maritime commercial fleet to fishing vessels to maritime academies to prior government and private sector work. Um, Our workforce literally comes from every corner of the nation, and we come together in these unique environments to operate our ships and aircraft. And how many are there of you? We have just over 330 officers, and we have just about 400 professional mariners. Overall, we have over 1,000 people in our workforce, but the people who actually go to sea and fly the aircraft um, are about 600 at any given time. So it's a pretty small workforce compared to the, you know, Coast Guard or the Navy or something like that. So a few bad apples can really kind of hurt the whole bushel then, can't they? Absolutely. So it's a small workforce, which to your point can have really detrimental impacts within an operational unit, within a ship, within an aircraft, within an operational center. The good news is we're a small team, so we are nimble, and that's really played to our benefit in making these workplace improvements is that we can come together as a team. We train as a team in person. We have these conversations in person, and that's really driven the change. Give us a sense of the timeline. When did all this take place? When did these reports come in, and what was your job at the time, or was it the job you have now? So it was actually two jobs ago. So I was the chief of staff for Marine and Aviation Operations. When I really started to get the sense of what was going on and working with the workforce to understand why it was happening, where were the impediments to the process and addressing what was going on. And then followed that through my time as a deputy director and then now the director. We've really 
you know, kind of taken this bull by the horns and tackled it aggressively, I'd say, for the last five years. Sure. And just give us a little bit more sense of what it was that was going on. Was it primarily sexual assault? Was it simply bullying male, female, both ways? I mean, what was actually going on? So I don't know if the word fortunately is the right word, but this was pretty much in the realm of harassment, bullying. We weren't seeing assault. I think there have been one or two assault cases in that timeline. But, you know, is everything from hazing when new employees would come on board to, you know, longstanding employees who would make people, scientists or our own crew feel uncomfortable, be limited in the way they could perform their job. So we really tackled this at the grassroots. It starts everything from how we welcome new employees or visiting scientists on our platforms to what type of jokes are appropriate, right, to make people feel included on the team. And then certainly, you know, touching of any kind is not allowed and not permitted. So we've really, you know, tackled this from every corner. Um, And we call it respectful workplace because that's where it all starts is how people treat each other day in and day out. And when that's left untended, that's what results in the harassment and the assault. So we've really tackled it at the grassroots, knowing that that left unchecked is that chain of events that we're also familiar with in the operational world that leads to a devastating impact. We're speaking with Rear Admiral Nancy Hahn. She's director of the Commission Corps and director of Marine and Aviation Operations at NOAA. And she's also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. And according to the citation for your award, you also got rid of a few people. You took them right out of there and kind of cleaned up that way. We have. So when we set about really addressing this aggressively, we recognized three main pillars we had to address. First, with training, we had to make it very clear to people what was tolerable and what was not tolerable. And that started with our training, not showing people PowerPoints or videos, but we actually did case studies based on cases that occurred within our work environment, within our workforce. We did training in person. We had really uncomfortable conversations with people to understand what the problem was and how were we in the situation that we were and make it really clear what was and was not tolerable, what levels of conduct were expected. We also work closely with our managers to make them understand they had a role in this. If someone brought an allegation to them, it wasn't a choice to pass it on or not. They have an obligation to bring it forward and we have an obligation to investigate it. The third pillar was investigation. So at the time, we didn't have a way to thoroughly and quickly look into allegations. We do now. We have a contractor assigned to us. He's a previous FBI investigator. He's very experienced in operational environments. So he's required to be on scene 48 hours from notification when we ask him. Um, And he's done that several times. So there's something occurring on a ship and you pull into the dock and he's there waiting for you. He is going to find out what's going on on that ship or in that workplace. And then we're swiftly going to take personnel actions. And to your point, sometimes that's involved removal. Sometimes that's involved pretty significant suspensions. But if you are not following the rules of our conduct, there will be consequences. And that's very well known within our workforce. And the unions generally go along with this because sometimes they can be a resisting force to that kind of change. We've done this in partnership with the union. So we've been clear from the beginning what the challenge is, what the goal is, and that the workforce has been part of this change. You know, we have not kind of dictated them what to do because that would not be successful. We've had them be owners in what does a respectful workplace look like? What is their role and responsibility in that? How are they going to affect that change? So they have been active participants and 
the unions want a good workplace for their members. You know, they have an expectation, we have an expectation, so we have that in common. And how do you measure progress in an area like this? Is it simply fewer reports or are there other ways to tell maybe mission effectiveness improves in some manner? That's a really good question, Tom, because just having less reports is not a good indicator, right? That can mean people are scared to report. That can mean they are fearful of retribution and reporting. So we've looked at this in a few key ways. Number one, we actually expected an increase in reporting when we put the proper structure in place. And that's exactly what happened. We had more reporting. You know, in the last few years, the number of reports have gone down. But what's really important with the number going down is what is the severity of reports coming forward? And what we're seeing is people are coming forward in much lower level actions. So at the beginning of that chain of events, they're coming forward and having conversations and expressing concern at a much lower level. That's key. The number alone is not key. The level of reporting, when people are reporting and what they're reporting is key because one, they feel safe reporting it. They know something's going to happen. You know, something will happen with those allegations. I've also looked at safety. So I've told our workforce, there is nothing more impactful to safety than a respectful workplace. We're flying airplanes into hurricanes. You know, we're operating ships in the Bering Sea with 40 foot waves. Not having good communication among your crew is the most threatening thing to safety. And we're already doing dangerous work. We can't have this be present. So I've tracked safety trends, safety numbers. We do our own fleet inspections. So I talk to the chief of that division frequently. I say, what does it look like? What are your inspectors seeing? Is the crew all participating? Do they know their systems? Do they feel safe to operate those systems and tell you if they have concerns? And the answer has been yes. So we've seen a significant change in our safety posture, both in numbers and how the interaction of the crew has expanded. So I watch it in several mediums. I talk, you know, the leaders on our ships, like, you know, do you feel like you're empowered to take action? If someone brings you an allegation of a bad apple, you know, to use your words, do you feel empowered to make a decision, whether that's bringing a ship to port immediately, removing that crew member from your ship, taking personal action? And they say, yes, they absolutely do. So there's several factors that I keep very close tabs on to make sure that our plan is working. Our plan is having a positive result. Do you ever wish you could be underground boss and kind of spend a couple of days or something in one of the units or aboard one of the planes and just kind of observe? Of course, most of them would probably recognize you. Yeah, I do. Sometimes I get to spend some time on a ship or, you know, visit our centers, but I do wish I could more, you know, to make sure that I'm staying connected with the hard work that people are doing every day. There's a lot of sacrifices. People are away from their families for months and months at a time and You know, they're making a lot of sacrifices to collect this data for the nation. So it's always important for me to stay grounded and realize, you know, what the challenges are that they're facing, what the sacrifices are that they're making, and how committed they are to collecting this data. Rear Admiral Nancy Hahn is director of the Commission Corps and director of Marine and Aviation Operations at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And she's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom, for having me. I appreciate the conversation. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a slightly past mid-year review of your thrift savings plan investment returns. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. For Thrift Savings Plan Investors, 2023 so far has brought a partial climb back out of the depths of 2022. 
It's also a good time to separate the patient investors over here and the would-be market timers over there. We get more from certified financial planner Art Stein. And Art, let's start with a review of TSP funds so far. How are they doing relative to where they were and how are they doing relative to the market in general? Year to date, rates of return for all the TSP funds have been very good. And for the stock funds, they've really been great. Uh, The C funds up 17% this year, the S fund 13%, the I fund 12%. Those are really big rates of return for a six-month period. F funds up 2%, and uh, the G funds up 2% too. These are all rounded to 1%, of course. So a very good year. Now, a lot of contrast to last year, which was an unusually bad year because both the bond, uh, the F fund, the, the intermediate-term bond fund, and all the three stock funds were down by double digits. And, you know, a certain number of people are during those kinds of decline are tempted to pull their money out of the stock funds and probably the bond fund too, and put it in the G fund, which has an advantage that it never fluctuates in value. It's never going to go down. It's never going to go up very much either, but people like that safety. And that hurts them because then they're not invested in the stock funds when the stocks start to go up. And for employees, what I find maybe even more disturbing is the people that do this, Tom, tend to then start making their biweekly investments into the G fund too, instead of, you know, concentrating those into the funds that have gone down in value, which gives them the opportunity to buy shares when they're cheap, which is a lot of leverage when they start going up. It's really an emotional reaction can very much hurt people. Other thing to keep in mind is that really bad years, you know, historically uh, have been followed by lots of very good years. And overall, you know, if you look long periods of time, the uh, TSP funds, the stock funds have way outperformed the bond funds. Over the last 15 years, the average annual return per year for the C fund was 11%, 9% for S. And, you know, compare that with 2.9% for the F fund and 2.3% for the G fund. It's a big difference. In other words, you should have your strategy in place and be patient with it, even when it gets a little wavy and you get a little bit of queasiness. Yeah. um, Investors need to anticipate these types of market declines. You know, there's always a potential. And, you know, the worst thing that someone can do is to try and time it in advance. So, you know, people were pulling out you know, in anticipation of a uh, recession this year, which has been heavily forecasted and has never happened, (laughs) you know, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon unless we, uh, you know, there's some kind of terrible event happens to cause it, which, you know, I mean, if you look at COVID, you look at the war in Ukraine, uh, lots of other things. I mean, it's possible, but, To invest for that doesn't make sense. And sometimes the economy and markets will surprise you. I mean, everyone anticipated with these rising rates of interest, 
okay, the inflation was tamped down, but it didn't really have the recessionary effects that people remember vestigially from the 1980s. Absolutely. I mean, the reason the Fed raised interest rates was to reduce inflation, even if it meant that we would have a recession. And they were willing to make that sacrifice. They've done it before. And, you know, as painful as it is, it makes sense. But the recession has not happened. And the most striking thing is that employment is, you know, the employment numbers are great. Unemployment is very low. And that is really counterintuitive to a time when interest rates have increased so much. Well, that's right. I mean, it could be that we are on a verge of a structural change in the economy and the way it operates. I mean, this happens from time to time, you know, every 50 years or so, you know, the so-called service economy. I don't know what the next economy is, but it seems like all of that was accelerated to some degree, maybe by the pandemic. That could be, but it could also be, Tom, that just economists are not very good at forecasting the effects of things like higher interest rates. I mean, they can look back and say, you know, looking at all the historical examples, most of the time this happened if we did this. But it's never all the time. And the exceptions can put a permanent dent in someone's investments if they make the wrong move. I mean, what we do for clients in my firm is we don't do anything in advance. We don't try and forecast the market. But when the market goes down a lot, we sell bond funds to put money into stock funds and that we take advantage of the decline in the markets. Now, when the markets are way up, then we're selling stock funds to put money into bond funds and take advantage of the big increases in stocks. That way we're not forecasting, we're reacting to what has actually happened. I think that's better. What I would suggest for TSP investors is that they keep in mind there's always a stock market crash coming up. It's just we don't have any idea when it's going to happen. The next one could be 11 years from now. For all I know, Tom, it could be 11 days from now. But you need to have a plan as to what you're going to do. And pulling money out in advance is not a good plan. Right. And so how do you balance what you do with your plan versus that idea of sticking with your strategy and not trying to time the market. There's some kind of middle ground there that makes sense for individual well, investors. I, I just think don't try and manage your investments, move money around in, in anticipation of what you think might happen or even what you read in all the papers and here on CNBC, what they think is going to happen, no matter how many people think it's going to happen. And But if something does happen, well, then maybe you just continue to invest. You continue with the same allocation you had before, or maybe you move money into what's gone down in value because selling high and buying low and then maybe selling high later that's the way to make a profit. But if you're, it's too tempting to sell once things start going down and the markets crash and people get scared and disgusted, and then they're selling low. And it's very hard to get back into the market emotionally. Right. And so you have to kind of filter out a lot of the news stream and the consensus forecasts and all of this information. It's almost hard to avoid hearing it day in, day out. And reading it too. And I mean, Keep in mind, and you know you know this a lot better than I do, if you're on 
CNBC five days a week or you're writing an article for the Wall Street Journal five days a week, you have to come up with some hook five days a week. So it's easy to like overanalyze the market and say the market is telling us this or the market's unhappy about that or this makes the market nervous. And the market is not a person and it doesn't react that way. It The sum total of millions of decisions being made every day by I don't know how many numbers of people and the net result of that is that the market is going to go up or down. Yeah, people treat the market the same way they treat Twitter or something or social media. You know, you see these headlines, Twitter goes crazy over XYZ. You know, my answer always is, so what? That means yeah. absolutely nothing in reality. Yeah, and a lot of the analysis you'll see, if you look closely, you frequently see the words, the market may crash this year. Well, yeah, that could happen. Or it may go up. I mean, that's not really a forecast. That's just stating the obvious. It could go up or down. It's like we could have rain this year. Yeah, you know, that'll happen. You need to ignore a lot of that and just look at the historical trends. Past performance, no guarantee of future performance. But historically, stocks have outperformed bonds in well-diversified, well-managed portfolios by significant amounts long-term, but have way underperformed for months or in some cases years. Well, for most people, the TSP is a long-term investment and they need to invest accordingly. Yeah, this would seem like a good time to stick with the plan because the market is up. Again, we don't know what it's going to do in the second half of the year, but the fundamentals such as they are have driven this market and nothing has fundamentally changed. The inflation seems to be under control. Now they're talking about wage inflation, but that's kind of a hard thing to be against, I guess, if your wages are going up. Yeah, so, I mean, wage inflation, for most people, that's a good thing because their wages are going up. And it's not like the price of a chicken goes up for no reason at all. I mean, the chicken doesn't get anything out of that, as we know. <laughs> right. And we want to see wages go up more quickly than uh, inflation. And, you know, historically, more efficient use of resources and things like computers and maybe AI have allowed for wages to go up much more quickly than inflation. Certified financial planner Art Stein will end on that note. Thanks a lot, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. U.S. Cyber Command is on the cusp of big change. The command is set to get a new leader for the first time in five years if the Senate confirms him. And Cybercom is about to get some powerful new budgeting authorities. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Tell us more about the nominee. He's had his hearing for Cybercom. What did we learn here, Justin? Yeah, this is Air Force Lieutenant General Timothy Hawk. He's been nominated to have the dual hat role of commander of Cybercom and director of the National Security Agency. Hawk is currently deputy commander at Cybercom, and his career uh, priors are listed with or littered with the word cyber. He was commander at the 16th Air Force, which is their big cyber unit. He was commander uh, Air Force's cyber and Commander uh, Joint Force Headquarters Cyber at Joint Base San Antonio-Lackland, Texas. 
Uh, so he's had some roles in the intelligence community as well. So he's, he's got that resume that would certainly back up being uh, commander of Cybercom. He would replace, of course, his current boss, uh, Army General Paul Nakasone, who has led Cybercom since 2018. It's matured pretty rapidly in those years. It's implemented this new defend forward strategy that came out during the Trump administration and saw Cybercom really uh, become more aggressive in pursuing cyber operations abroad. Nakasone has been there beyond the traditional four-year role. He was asked to stay on an extra year, and now Hawk has been nominated to replace him. Now, notwithstanding the fact that all of these nominations are on hold because of Senator Tuberville, beyond that, how did the hearing go? What did it look like as the outlook for Hawk's confirmation? Yeah, you know, he he's gotten through you know, two confirmation hearings, actually. It was the Senate Armed Services Committee last week to really look at his role as prospective role as Cybercom commander. That went well, nothing really holding him up there. Same with the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence confirmation hearing earlier this month to kind of discuss more NSA issues. Of course, Congress is considering uh, reauthorization of the Section 702 surveillance powers. Big, big issue in the national security space. Hawk has been asked about that, but his nomination doesn't really face any sort of uh, issues that are out there at this point, except for that blanket hold in all military nominees. Yeah, well, that's bigger than any two people, I guess, uh, involved there. And these new budget authorities, that's kind of exciting. You know, agencies, you see this happening across the government, different budgeting, even contracting authorities that are carved out by Congress for specific agencies. What's going on with Cybercom? Yeah, this really points to Cybercom's uh, maturation. And, and, you know, it's only 13 years old at this point. And really, it's relied on the military services to budget for cyber, uh, cyber forces, for cyber personnel, for cyber capabilities that then feed up into Cybercom. But there was a change more than two years ago in the fiscal 2022 NDAA. Uh, That law says that starting with the 2024 budget, the head of Cybercom will have direct control over the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution of resources. That PPBE process that sounds so bureaucratic, but is so important in the Pentagon, of course, he will have control over that for the Cyber Mission Force. And Hawk said that forthcoming change is really a critical moment in Cybercom's history. And it's one of the things that he's looking forward to the most. Here he is at the Senate Armed Services Committee last week. It allows Cyber Command to set the investment in our training infrastructure, in our training courses, and allows the services to focus on recruiting, initial skills training aligned to our standard, and then to leverage the retention capabilities that Congress has given to the services. So those are areas now that really change the dynamic of how we will approach cyber readiness if confirmed. And I'm sure contractors are listening to this idea of them having Cybercom having its own PPBE authority. So will that change how they work with industry, do you think? Yeah, Hawk said it's going to really increase Cybercom's, you know, interactions and, and contracting with industry, frankly. Uh, you know, this this also comes as Cybercom is getting its a build out of its acquisition authority and programs over the next five years through 2027. Cybercom will kind of assume the acquisition authority for the cyber warfighting platforms and all the technologies that go into that. 
And so Hawk was asked about how Cybercom works with commercial industry. And here's what he said. Right now, uh, we do have collaborative relationships with industry and particularly with small business. That's really where the department focused us initially. Now, as we gain our budget control and our acquisition authority, that will allow us to expand how we interact with industry and certainly be able to bring much more resource. That will enable us to operate with more speed and agility aligned with our requirements and, and we're excited about that opportunity. And what else came up at the hearing? And specifically, I'm wondering if the idea of there's kind of a tension built into having one hat or two hats on one person overseeing the NSA and the Cybercom. Yeah, this has really been the perpetual question since Cybercom really came into existence is do you do you eventually split up the the command of Cybercom and the, the lead of the NSA? Um you know, Hawk said he supports the results of a recent study that was led by the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, retired Marine Corps General Joseph Dunford. And that study essentially said that there are substantial benefits to retaining the existing structure. Uh, Hawk said that he thinks that's the case going forward as he gets set to assume both of those roles. What it reflects is really a maturation of U.S. Cyber Command and, and that relationship and operational partnership with the National Security Agency being in the best interests of the nation. In reality, the signals intelligence and the cyber environments are overlapping. So having a single leader with the ability to align the capabilities of, of NSA and Cyber Command gives us greater speed and agility. It also allows us to, at the beginning of planning, be very considerate of how do we protect intelligence sources while still being able to position to produce the outcomes the nation needs us to have. Yeah, it's a complicated question because you have the NSA on the one hand, which is just intelligence gathering, and you have Cybercom, which can zap people if the need calls. So we'll see how that goes. But again, the Tupperville is on, so it's all kind of academic until that issue is resolved. That's right. I don't think uh, Hawk or any other prospective military leader is going to move any time going forward while that issue gets sorted out. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen. 